Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. But when we started, like, at that first table read a couple months ago um, for season five, it definitely was, it definitely was bittersweet, you know? It's just like, oh no, this is the last time we're going to be doing an episode one. Everyone's taking, like, extra photos of everything. And then we're on to a hospital scene, and Murphy is in a hallway on a gurney. Which is interesting. I would think that this wouldn't be a thing, but I remember Ellen talking about that she once was stuck on a gurney in a hallway because there just wasn't room in any of the rooms. So it is is a thing. I have been on a gurney in a hallway. I, you know, th- I the only time I ever went into a hospital other than being born was for very scheduled surgery. So I guess I haven't had an emergency situation, you know, luckily. I almost did, but I didn't. This is something that I do love about the show is how they kind of show the pitfalls of Murphy's celebrity the worst moment that you'd ever want to be recognized in pain in a hospital hallway, an entire family recognizes her. Mm -hmm. And they want to take a picture with her. There's a woman, particularly at first, she brings in her husband and her old aunt in like a a wheelchair and her daughter and they take a picture. And then as they leave, I want to call her a grandmother, but the aunt does. And she says, now can I have a cigarette? It's because we know her as a grandma and everything. Right? I think that's why. Go ahead. I... But I, re- yeah, that, that actress, oh, I, I recognize, I recognize that actress. Yeah. She was like in everything back then. It's her in the wedding singer with the meatballs. Oh, she was, see, yeah, she was yeah. in everything. And I did write that down. I love that white, that one liner. She's, it's like, yeah, yeah. Can I have a cigarette now? <laughs> like you just said, yeah. I didn't realize that she was in it until I rewatched it because, you know, usually I take the names from the IMDb and I go, oh, that's someone we like. That's someone, you know, because so, we can't talk about everybody, but people who maybe, you know, still have a significant career, career. So I didn't recognize her name, but yeah, as soon as I saw her, I knew who she was and I looked her up and she lived to be 101 years old. Yeah. She lived, she just died recently yeah relatively recently and her last credit she had a great career she really did and it's considered a late in life career because she really didn't start Mm -hmm. till she was in her 70s even though apparently in los angeles she was a very well-known uh acting teacher she had several degrees in the theater but her last credit is in 2013 the year she turned 100 and it's a new girl oh wow so she was still working which is amazing i love that She was born in 1913. Her name is Ellen Albertini Dow. Uh, She has a bachelor's and a master's degree in theater from Cornell. She danced. She she did mime with Marcel Marceau. Wow. She has the best voice. Her voice is so cute. She studied with Uta Hagen. And even though she wasn't Jewish, she did Yiddish theater in New York City, which I thought was really great. And yeah, she was sort of known as this feisty older woman. She was in Sister Act. She's also a nun in My Blue Heaven. Uh, Golden Girls. I think she's only one episode, but she's uh, she's Sophia's friend, sort of little friend who she's trying to help at the, the t- retirement home. She's Karen's mother-in-law in Will and Grace. And uh, Jessie is our uh, resident Star Trek person. And so I need to ask you this, and you might know more about this. She was apparently at the time Mm-hmm. that she was alive the longest living guest star in star trek that's amazing yeah, that uh mm-hmm. but yeah she had this mm-hmm. really amazing life and she didn't move to los angeles with her husband until like the 80s oh she was also in wedding crashers she's always sort of like the 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 feisty old grandma um but yes yeah, it was so sort of lovely to read about her career and and that it lasted for so long even though it technically started late which uh, a friend of mine who's an acting coach and and she likes to say you know anyone can be an actor at any age, you know, as long as you have a pulse, you can be an actor. Mm-hmm. So it was just 
encouraging. There's an actor out here in Chicago. He's the oldest uh, equity actor in Chicago. He's in his 90s. And um, he's still going. And when they did Hamlet at Chicago Shakespeare Theater a couple years ago, we went specifically because he was playing the gravedigger. Oh. And like everyone in, in the city wanted to see this guy do a gravedigger, even though there are times where like he needs to be prompted for his lines. Uh, or you could just see the other actors there like holding space for him to like remember what he's doing. Like he's so fantastic to watch because to watch a gravedigger that is actually this like ancient seeming man who still has all of the uh, points of view that you would want in that character it's it was such a gift to see and it's that type of thing seeing somebody who has been around for that long bringing their age and experience and vitality to a role is is so exciting to to witness and so it makes sense she just kept going for as long as she did Finally, Miles shows up in the hallway after this family leaves. Uh, they were doing stress tests in the cafeteria. How convenient. Uh, he's still at 240. Not not really good. Um, Murphy's wondering where her x-ray went. Did they go to Photomat? Which I feel like, unfortunately, is probably a line that someone who's younger than us would not get. Um, mm -hmm. Anyone listening, uh, Photomat was a place where you went to have your pictures developed. Yeah. I like to think that in context, right? Context yeah, totally. Clues, yeah. You would get this joke, right? Yeah. Photo map. Yeah, it's like going to CVS or something. And then we have another of sort of the uh, major guest stars is the fabulous Loretta Devine shows up as Nurse yeah. Hawkins. So, that's who I was going to talk her. about when yeah? you said oh, if I ahead. recognize anyone. And then, mm -hmm. um, but then you you meant the core. Tell us about Loretta, your thoughts on mm -hmm. yeah, go No, ahead. I, was, I, I was just like, oh my God, like the, here's another, you know, actress um that I just I was like oh my god I just totally remember her in like so many shows and movies when I was growing up and talk about unique voice I love her voice like her voice is just so great it's just it's just so mm -hmm. it's it's so cute oh. it's so cute but yet um you know very um strong at the same time and uh that I just yeah I just I love I love her I love her Mm -hmm. And I actually, I looked her up on IMDb and I was just like, it was great to see that she's, she's still working. She is, yeah. Um, oh, she's, yeah. yeah. She's, she's been working this whole time. Um, but oh, it was, yeah. it was just amazing. Like how something like that's um, like a sound or voice or like even seeing someone will like automatically just take you back, you know, that the 20 years, the 30 years kind of thing. Um, yeah. I, I thought she was great. Yeah, her very sweet voice plus the cadence of her accent is just so specific. Yes, yes, yes. It's, I love her. It's I, so specific, yeah. I think for a lot of people, I mean, yeah, she. I grew up and she was in everything. Uh, I think a lot of people in the kind of elder millennial, younger Gen X are, got to watch her kind of come back into our obvious scopes in uh, Grey's Anatomy, playing Adele Weber for years. Uh, which was great because she was somebody they were like, oh, yeah, her. And then we got to see her play this, like, significant role for a while. Yeah, I never watched. Um, I'm, like, the only person who, like, in the world has never watched Grey's Anatomy. But I, that's a show, like, I've never watched. I fell off years ago. But in the first, like, in those, like, heyday first seasons, she was constantly on it. And I had friends who were obsessed, so I watched it. I mean, I could, I can't even go through the full list of her credits because it's so long and illustrious. And the sheer number of NAACP image awards that she has won alone is so impressive because she's a force. Yes. Most notable, uh, she originated the role of Laurel Robinson in Dreamgirls on, on Broadway. Like, she's stunning. Uh, she, I love her in Waiting to Exhale. 
She is so incredible. Adele Weber in Grey's Anatomy. Uh, she has worked on Broadway, in film, on television, and she's still going. I mean, that, that's the great thing about her. And yeah, that voice. I is, love it. <laughs> I could hear her read anything. And when she gets forceful, it's just, again, yeah, she has a very cute, sweet voice. But there's, you never question the power behind it, which is something I find very fascinating. Well, that's what I'm saying. But it still sounds like so cute. And like you said, the cadence, you know, but like the, you know, the words that she says, you know, I just, huh? She, no, like she'll stop you uh, with her voice. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, I just, I just thought it was, it was great when I was watching the episode. I was just like, oh, hey, I know you, <laughs> you know, like that's. But she's such a baby. Yeah. Like she's so young. Oh my God. Talk about young. I mean, uh just, David Paymer, who then is the doctor who plays Harry Drake on Maisel, who is yeah. Susie's nemesis as as her agent, the nemesis agent, uh, Sophie's agent on there. But I was like, oh, my goodness, you look like you're 12. You know, right. Like, like you're like you're a baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, I have to say. Lauren, I know you're about to talk about. Uh, about David, I no, just go I, ahead, please. My Evolve. thrill at the fact that he references a cattle drive when the next year City Slickers was released. I saw that. I was like, wait, I had to go look at the timing. I was like, City Slickers hadn't come out yet. He references a cattle drive, and then the next year City Slickers gets released. It was. I was so excited. I was just thrilled. I love that movie. Which is interesting because City Slickers kind of changed his career in like a huge way because you met Billy Crystal. Because I, I just saw David. In previews for Mr. Saturday Night, he's uh, reprising a role. I don't know if you know this, Matilda, on Broadway, the musical version of a movie that he did in 1992 that he was nominated for an Oscar for. And I was trying to find out if this was actually like some sort of record, because usually it's the other way around, right? You have people who were in the play, you know, do the movie, as opposed to, you know, how many over 30 years later, or maybe exactly 30 years. I can't count because um, the play takes place in 94 and I think the movie was 92 to come back so many years later and play the exact same role in the musical version of the movie that you were nominated mm -hmm. for an Oscar for. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and he was wonderful. and It was great. And I didn't know. Like, I was like, oh, I didn't know he sang. He was in Greece. He was a replacement in Greece, I found out. So it's like, you know, this is he's only done musicals on Broadway. So um, but what was interesting as well to me is that I feel like kind of actually like Kevin Pollack, the the 90s face, like the two of them were just in so much stuff mm -hmm. in the 90s. And uh, so that's also obviously a connection to you. But yep. uh, for the audience who isn't as familiar as we are with the great David uh, Pamer, he was in uh, Get Shorty, The American President, uh, oh, Heart yeah. and Souls, which I found an interview he was filming while he had been going through all the Oscar process. So it's a smaller part, but we love him in that quiz show, obviously City Slickers, which we mentioned. What I didn't know was just to kind of also talk about kind of like actor stories and how like sometimes, you know, things can get us down of being fired or like even, you know, the guy was fired for David Ruffin. David Ruffin was eventually fired from the temps. But he was apparently cast as a series regular in St. Elsewhere. And then last minute was replaced by Howie Mandel. Oh. But he went on to recur on Cagney and Lacey, which I didn't know because I didn't watch Cagney and Lacey. And then also he had a guest uh, appearance on The Paper Chase, which Steve Peterman, who wrote this episode when he was an actor, was on The Paper Chase. And he talked about that, you know, he knew David because they were always up for the same roles. 
Um, and that's something else I really love when we, we had Steve Peterman on because uh, Steve and Gary, who wrote this, used to be actors, is they'll talk about, particularly to Steve, about, oh, well, I knew all these people from when we were actors and we got to give them parts now. And it was really great to do that. So uh, we are a big fan of his work and it's fun to see him. And he's recurring. He comes back in another episode as Murphy's <laughs> doctor, who uh, feels like the perfect kind of doctor that yes. Murphy needs because he doesn't like take her bullshit. And he <laughs> kind of throws it right back. Yeah, I thought that was great. I, the hold that City Slickers had over my family's household when those movies came out. <laughs> Every time I see him, no matter what else he's done, I just immediately go to City Slickers. Yeah, so so we're still in the hallway. We have met this uh, doctor for Murphy who definitely doesn't particularly like her. Every time he sees her, he wishes he'd become a veterinarian. Is he the, is he the one that says, I can, I, I can open up Pepsi with my butt? Yes. He's so tight yeah. from <laughs> just... A couple of minutes with her, he can open a Pepsi with his butt. Yeah, okay, that's be- yes. that was the preface. That's right. I couldn't remember the the setup to that joke. Yeah, uh, which till this day, uh, Steve told us that uh, he remembers that Norm Gunsenhauer wrote that joke. Which I can't believe that they still can remember, like in the room, who wrote one specific joke. It's pretty amazing. But I guess yeah. it stood out. We find out that Murphy had a slipped disc, and she is going to be in the hospital for as long as he says that she is. And Miles is going to have another sort of uh, stress-related incident because uh, Murphy's out, Frank's out. I'm sorry, Murphy's out, Jim's out, which only leaves Frank. They don't even account for Corky. They don't even count her as an option to pick up slack. (laughs) Oh, that's right. He doesn't, of course. Well, you know. And I love that callback then. Then there's a callback to the yoga the yoga poses that he just starts doing in the hallway. He doesn't because he's so stressed out. It's like I can't even explain how... Uh, we're, we'll put a clip on, you know, the Instagram, but just the fact the way that the Grant does it, it's even funnier than he was doing it in the previous scene. Oh, he's just he's really not doing it in a way where he would re- receive the benefits, I would yeah, say. And what I think is funny about the scene is is that it's it's funny the way that he's doing it, but also watching David, the way that he's looking him at him, the way that uh, Candace is looking at him. It's also their reactions to like, what is this thing that he is doing? It's this really great physical comedy. Yeah, I love mm-hmm. I personally love out of the blue moments, um, especially for physical comedy, for for anything, for, you know, a show or a play or anything like that. Like something like mm-hmm. um, you're obviously not expecting that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just he just starts doing it. And it's just absolutely hysterical. Yeah, I love that, too. I feel like it's the epitome of someone saying, hurry up and relax. <laughs> it's that it, like he's doing it with <laughs> so much tension. There's no way he's going to relax. Right. right. It's hilarious. So we flash forward to Murphy in her hospital bed, which what appears to be a sling under her knees. And as somebody with scoliosis and back pain, I wish I had that in my bed, actually, to relieve the pressure from her back. Uh, But she's sitting there. She is covered with blankets and there's some pillows. And she has one nurse already in the room. Another nurse comes in very energetically. And uh, I can only read her, write her line in all caps because that is the energy she barrels in with. Holding a bouquet says that she doesn't normally work double shifts, but she's just so excited to have her here that she just can't go home. And look, here's another bouquet. Apparently Murphy's the most popular person in the hospital. Should she read the card? Murphy doesn't care. Well, she's going to read the card anyway. And this is the uh, callback to Connie Chung. Wow, it's from Connie Chung. You can't fool me. You're having your thigh sucked. Yeah, it's like the third reference reference of Connie this season, right? And I love what she says. She'll put it aside because she knows Murphy will want to save it. Yeah, because Connie Chung was so, like, loved and popular. 
yeah. and she had just moved to CBS at that point, so she was on mm-hmm. the same network. And she had already guested on the show. Yes. Uh, had popped in and She a did, yeah. And when she talked about that uh, <laughs> news personalities who guest on sitcoms are terrible. <laughs> oh, no. So, yeah. Yeah. So Nurse Hawking re- arrives, and she wants to know which of those two nurses left Miss Cupcheck in the bathroom. They both run out of there, and now that they're gone, Nurse Hawking can continue on her goal to blow the lid off the slaughterhouse. Because upon seeing Murphy Brown in the previous episode, she is convinced that Murphy is just there to to break a story about the, the hypocrisy and the conspiracies of the hospital. Murphy's trying to convince her, no, she really is not doing a story. She slipped a disc. You can see it in the chart. And then she says this great line about how her back is a map, a mess. Now they're not talking about cutting, are they? Don't let anyone near your spine. One of those pinhead residents gets a little nervous. Next thing you got a steel rod in your back. She's seen it. And like the intensity of Loretta Divine cannot be done justice in my recap, yeah. but she is the the sudden like intensity that she goes into about like watch out for those residents. <laughs> it's so good. And yeah, those right at that scenes. moment to save her from Nurse Hawking. Uh, Miles, Corky, Phil, and Frank enter with a, there she is. They want to know how she's feeling. And Murphy says, well, she's having a ball, Frank. More fun than she's ever dreamed of. She's made friends. She'll keep the rest of her life. How do you think I'm doing? And so something about Corky that I personally love that in retrospect, I love, which is that Corky is very much a, a fragment of her time and of her upbringing as far as like what women are supposed to do when you're looking for a man and the way you're supposed to behave. And she says these things with such sincerity that you she gets away with it. But she says the worst line about judging on the way you look, you're going to have to rely on your personality more than now than ever. Because there are some attractive doctors here. <laughs> but yeah. she's really being helpful. She does. She really thinks she's being helpful. <laughs> I love her so much. <laughs> Frank does what might be one of my creepiest Frank's, Frank moments <laughs> about her sling. When he uh, wants to know if she gets to keep the sling that has her legs up in the air because he'd love to borrow it sometime. <laughs> That's the moment that I actually wrote down. This guy reminds me of Doug Stamper on House yes. of Cards. That's, yes. That was the, I was like, yeah, he's the comedy version. of. He knows someone would look great in it. I was like, I Frank. totally missed that. Oh my God. <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> he was like, he was like petting the rope while he was talking. I was like, Frank, oh my God. <laughs> I think because it's Frank, it's not creepy. But if anyone else, I, I'd be exactly. like, no. No. Yeah, he's such a neurotic little mess. But like my, I have to say, so my takeaway from um, going back to like the whole feminism theme of like, of these like hospital scenes, I feel like, you know, once again, I feel like they're, they're showing like um, a woman, almost like if a woman stands up for herself and is is asking questions, like then she comes off as being like difficult, mm. uh-huh. um, you know, and, and but then, but then, the, but then the kicker at the end, um, there's that one moment where, you know, she's, she really is like asking like legitimate questions about her back, about this and that, you know, and, and the nurse, but you can tell people think are that she's being difficult, but then all of a sudden she yells at the nurses like, ah, oh, you're, I told you not to cut my sandwich this way. This is not how I like my sandwich. And the nurse is like, ah, you can stuff it or whatever and walks out. Yes. But I love I, that. You know, but that was so beautiful though, because it's, it also is that, that balance of, because this, this, again, this human being is kind of being is being difficult at the end of the day you know um so Mm -hmm. it isn't it isn't about like um she's a woman asking all these questions and therefore she's difficult but it's like no wait a minute this is this person's personality she really is kind of like a cranky person 
you know, because mm-hmm. then it's like, I will like my sandwiches, whatever. Like, they're supposed to be in a triangle, not a, not a square or whatever, whatever the line is, you know. I thought that was great. I love that it's the nurse who was so excited to see her and had such star eyes for her is the one yeah. who tells her to shove it. <laughs> like, I was like, good for you, girl. <laughs> yeah, just shows, you know, how, uh, how terrible Murphy is. Yeah, she's, she's a pill. She's a pill. We love her, but she's a pill. <laughs> Fra- uh, Murphy is worrying about work. She wants to know, what if someone breaks the story she's been working on before her? What if her phone rings? It's ringing. She can feel it. She tries to sit up. A big ow. And Miles points out that the minute she thinks about work, she tenses up. So if 2020 or 60 minutes get Pine River before them, so be it. Her health is more important. And Phil, Phil knows what will cheer her up. I love, I love all the moments when we get to see Phil outside of the bar and we get to see him be part of the gang. Because normally we only see him in Phil's pub. It's the only time we get to see him. And so he reads a letter from Jim. It says, Dear gang, greetings from Aruba. It's been an interesting six days sailing with Walter. They say you don't really know someone until you travel with them. Well, now I've learned that the most trusted man in America is hoarding fruit cocktail in his cabin. He has me swabbing the deck twice a day. And sometimes I'm on the lookout for 12 hours straight. Last night I dreamt of smothering him with a pillow. I better go now. He's getting suspicious. Pray for me, Jim. (laughs) Just like my poor Jim. Some backstory. Jim is my favorite character on the show. So I'm just like, my poor Jim is being held captive by Walter Cronkite. And again, the younger generation isn't going to know exactly like how so many generations uh, felt and grew yeah. up with Walter Cronkite, you know, mm-hmm. giving giving the um, the nightly news. And um, yeah, that's because it's like when you know, you just know. And just yeah. like so that letter in and of itself just is that much more hysterical if you grew up with, you know, the icon of that was Walter Cronkite. Yeah, the most trusted man in America was not a not a throwaway. That's genuinely how we knew him. Right. <laughs> so the idea that he is holding someone captive in a hoarding fruit cocktail <laughs> is just my favorite image. Um, I also love that the entire gang, no one comments on that. They just say nice flowers and just walk away. Like no one will comment on the letter because <laughs> they're just uncomfortable. And the phone rings next to Murphy. Frank answers. He says, it's some guy who won't give his name. Do you want it? She says, what the hell? Then we pan over to the gang at the flowers. And Corky's pointing out that Miles did something really sweet, like pointing out that her health is the most important thing and she needed to hear that. And Miles says, she lied to me. She said she was a fast healer. Look at her. She'll be lying in that bed till Shavuos. Shavuos. So I had to ask Lauren, Shavuos. I mean, depending on the Ashkenazi versus the, you know, uh, uh, Sephardic... Uh, pronunciation but uh he's saying Shavuos I would I would probably say Shavuot but he but Shavuos is also said I knew what he meant I don't celebrate it it's a very very obscure holiday I've never celebrated Shavuos in my life I was I grew up reformed (laughs) and I had to look up what it was uh it's uh, a couple it's it's something that is celebrated after Passover uh technically was the it's called the Feast of Weeks uh, it's about uh, crops and things like that. And um, I honestly can't tell you. And I feel like a bad Jew right now. Uh, but yes. But we know that it was in June, correct? It is. Uh, uh, that's what it's, it says uh, between May 15th and June 14th. Whereas like um, Passover tends to be like in the spring, like April, March, like depending because the ca- calendar is very different. Um, but yeah, it says uh, somewhere between May 15th and June 14th because our calendar is not the same as the uh, the ones that other people use. Um, so for the airing of this episode, yeah. 
I was going to say that's an interesting choice then for for them to have used that reference. I think Shavuos is a funny name of a holiday because I, I've written a uh-huh. pilot recently before I saw this and I used Shavuos as one of the holidays because it just sounds funny. So, uh, oh, that's not, yeah. yeah, I never even heard of it. I actually thought watching it, I thought he mispronounced, um, I hope I'm not mispronouncing it, um, Shabbos. Yeah. Shabbos? Shabbos? Yeah, I thought he was basically, I was thinking in my mind, like, maybe it's Monday. And he's thinking, oh, she's going to be in the hospital bed until, like, Friday night or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I yeah. thought he was mispronouncing that. That's what I That's how, mm-hmm. That's what. what I thought. But it's a completely different holiday that he's talking about. The, the gentleman who wrote this episode are Jewish. And so, and it's interesting, it says that, I'm looking at the wiki, and it's, like, according to, you know, traditional of Orthodox Judaism. So, and, you know, there are a lot of smaller holidays. Like, I know Sukkot. The Sukkot is also in the fall, isn't it? That's October. Yeah, uh, Sukkot. Sukkot. Yes, and so that was what I was going to bring up is like Sukkot is a holiday that actually like I only celebrated like in like Sunday school because it's like little kids make a little house and you like do stuff. So there's some smaller holidays that, you know, if you're not very religious that you don't necessarily celebrate. But this is the one where I went, oh, my God, I've always heard of it, but I can't remember what exactly it is because I have never celebrated it. Sorry to not be helpful as the resident Jew. (laughs) I I I just wanted to know how to pronounce it. I learned something new today. (laughs) Yeah, I I had never heard of that holiday. So, yeah, I just wanted to know how to pronounce it. So basically the point he's making is there's no way they're going to get the story before someone else that Mike Wallace is going to be checking into the Pine River Hyatt right now. Uh, And Phil points out that the stress reduction thing is doing him a world of good. Murphy holds out the phone, tells Miles to take the phone, tells Frank to get her clothes. She's got to get out of here. The call was the source of the Pine River. He's ready to talk on camera. She throws off her blanket. She says, I've got a film crew. I've got to get a film crew and get out as she lifts herself up. Incomplete pain. Corky's only concern is that Murphy's gown is going to ride up. Frank tries to calm her down, get her back into bed and says that he can take the crew and meet the guy. Frank can do the interview. Miles can go through the materials. Murphy points out, and I do appreciate this as somebody who like does a, a lot of my own work and therefore wants credit for my work. And I feel like I'm the only one who can do my work. Uh, says she has a ton of materials. She's the only one who can understand it. And Miles says, come on, they can handle it. He'll even write the copy himself. And she says, she knows, she knows. And I wrote, Murphy becomes suspiciously docile in this moment and says that she appreciates his concern. She really does. Could you just adjust these pillows for me? And like, even if you had only ever seen, I assume having just only seen this episode, you knew this was not a good moment for Miles. Oh, I saw uh, what was coming miles (laughs) away. Yeah. It's just one of those, again, sitcom moments where you're just like, yeah, I I know what's coming. Yeah. You're like, there's no way. This is bad. Do not trust it. But of course he trusts it. And he leans in to help her and she grabs him by the tie and says, now listen to me, Nurse Nancy. I'm not going to (laughs) be in here forever. And I know where you live. If you don't let me work on the story, all the bedrest in the world isn't going to help you. Capiche? And he just asks. What exactly will you be needing? And now we cut to Jerry. <laughs> Murphy is sitting mm. in her hospital bed getting a massage, which I would love. Jerry is editing for Murphy. I think we have Fran, right? I think there's Fran there. Mm-hmm. And then I'm pretty sure that Murphy has a old-fashioned word processor on her lap. On her lap, very heavy in comparison a, to. I saw it and I I felt the weight of it. Right. More than the touch of the key, more than mm-hmm. any, I felt the weight. And then like it's dense. the top, you would like 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 put the top down and then like you yes. pick it up like it was like a little suitcase and that little tiny yes. screen where you could only see like three sentences at the same time. Oh. Why, like why did anyone think that was a good idea? I, I don't know. 
We were trying. So Murphy is not being good with her stress reduction. She is screaming at Jerry, forward, backwards, faster, slower. To which Jerry says that she's starting to sound like his wife. Then I'm done. Just do it already. And Jerry goes, yep, yep, it's uncanny. <laughs> I, I do like, I know it's an old joke, but I do really like it. I have to say of the like, of the the kind of dated wife jokes, you know, that you might see in, in shows, I, that's one of my favorite approaches to it. Because what it is, is I don't believe any of the writers believe this type of joke, but I firmly believe the character Jerry makes those jokes. So Mur Murphy is... Um Getting what the what Nurse Divine, as I call her, Nurse Divine, um, is mm. referring to as sort of physical therapy. And the only reason is because none of the other nurses will even come near Murphy. And apparently a nurse transferred herself to the morgue just to get peace and quiet for Murphy. <laughs> One of my favorite running jokes is how much people just like go out of their way to get away from her. I yes. kind of love it. It's not a surprise to any of us that Murphy is a terrible patient, but I love that we get to see it in action. I don't care that it's not new information. Of course she's going to be a terrible patient, but the way it's done is so delightful and they just keep going. It's that joke of like, it's funnier because they just keep going. <laughs> now, uh, Murphy's trying to sweet talk Nurse Divine, who really, you know, has, doesn't, doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to help, really sort of forced to do her job. Um, and something that Steve emailed us about this episode was he said that Diane loves disgruntled employees. And I have to say yes. that is a very funny uh, archetypal type, but also feels mm -hmm. so like freeing to let someone to be able to sort of get all that off their chest. And it's a good conflict, I think, right? It's like, I had had enough with you. It's a wonderful placeholder for the everyman of most viewers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Your average viewer is someone who feels like this a lot. And we don't often get an like a self-insert for the viewers. We often get self-inserts for the writers or for the actors. But the idea of this is our modern everyman is just the disgruntled employee who has to deal with this diva. And there's something to be said about someone who is not considered, you know, a celebrity in this world to like give mm -hmm. this celebrity Murphy who's being like a brat a talking down mm -hmm. to. And she gets she gets a lot of talking down to's in the show and uh sometimes she thinks you can tell she thinks she deserves it and a lot of times she really doesn't think that she does <laughs> most of the time. Well, and another thing that's like obviously this is not what this moment or show is about, but or this episode or this particular moment with, with Nurse Divine is the people at the end of the day who are endlessly having to work for and care give are black women. Good point. And so watching Loretta Divine just finally get a moment where she's been having to serve this celebrity white woman, just be able to be like, no, that it is it's quite satisfying because especially this character, you know, has to deal with this all day, every day. So Nurse Divine pretty much says that Murphy has no sway over her because weatherman Willard Scott is coming in for a hernia operation. So she's going to use him to get her story done. So Murphy has no weight with her. Um, and then she leaves and Miles and Frank arrive. And uh, Miles, is it Miles, right, says that there's a picture of Murphy uh, with a hypodermic needle through it. So pretty much, which we could have guessed would happen, Frank thinks his interview edit is great and Murphy thinks it could be better and she has tons of notes. That that Miles, who did most of the copywriting, you know, says, excuse me, Lillian Hellman. 
Which I feel like now people might not know who Lillian Hellman was, but like she mm-hmm. was someone who had a very caustic wit. She wrote Little Foxes. She was not well liked by many people. She had a uh, off again, well, not off again, but a, a tumultuous relationship with uh, Dashiell Hammett, which many people oh, say right. is what The Thin Man is based on, not the movie, the books, uh, <laughs> just to give you a sense that they're not this, you know, cute little like, oh my God, they just love each other and we're going to have a dog named Aston. <laughs> I like the fact that Lillian Hellman has other baggage as well as just being like a great, yeah. great playwright as a person to pick. Yeah. Children's Hour, that's another play that she wrote. Oh, that was. Uh, so Miles thinks she's being very picky. Murphy thinks she's not being picky. And then the lunch arrives and she goes, ah, for God's sakes. She asks them to cut her sandwich diagonally because she hates it this way. When Murphy gets mad about the sandwich, the nurse who loved her before, who came in with the sandwich, goes, ah, choke on it. Honestly, so proud of that nurse's growth. Proud of her. So proud. Character development, man. Character development. So Murphy asks Miles to help her with the blanket, and he won't fall for it this time because he doesn't want to get close to her because he knows that she will probably grab him like she did before. He's learned his lesson. And then our favorite doctor comes in. (laughs) Murphy says that everyone's trying to kill her. (laughs) And the doctor says, get in line. Nurse Hawkins started a lottery. (laughs) I love the staff at the hospital. I love them. I love them. They are fantastic, and they are speaking their minds. So the doctor says that he can't believe how much equipment is in this room, and now he understands why the lights in the operating room keep dimming. And then she calls them all jackals and tries to spit a curse on them, and then it hurts her back, of course, trying to do it. Yeah, so uh, Murphy is uh, not going to be leaving this hospital anytime soon if she keeps acting like this. We cut to the hospital room again, and now we're getting a taste of Frank's investigative journalist voice, which is something I enjoy because we don't always see him in action. Mm -hmm. And he very much has a voice. And it's like the radioactive wastes that litter Pine River. Secrets have a way of leaking out. Murphy also has kind of her on-camera voice, but you're right. Frank's is definitely much different as if his toupee makes him sound like that. Yes. Well, and I think that's the thing that I love so much about Jim is the fact that Jim's voice is the same always. And that's what makes him so amusing is he is someone who's like, his voice just is from his self. Like his his role as the great anchor is holistic. It is an entire being. It does not turn off when he gets off stage. <laughs> like he is the job. Like you almost think like he sometimes goes into this voice when he's hitting on a woman. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, to see Jim courting Doris. Oh man, I'm gonna think about that for a moment. The two of them with their voices. Frank says, on a final note, this story would not have been possible without the efforts of my colleague, Murphy Brown. To which we get to Murphy going, yeah, yeah. For Jim Dial, who's on vacation, Murphy Brown, who's in the hospital, and Corky Sherwood, who's here, this is Frank Fontana. <laughs> and he ends with, chin up, America. <laughs> which is, I, this is my favorite, like, watching Frank try to have a gym moment. So bad. <laughs> it's my new favorite thing. If anyone is the, f- like, I would say even more than Corky, if anyone is the furthest away from Jim, I would say it's Frank. Because I think Murphy has obviously like the pedigree and the experience and the profession, you know, like the carriage. Corky has the desire to be a gym. She wants to do things the right way. She doesn't understand that she's not doing it, but she wants to do them. Frank is just Frank. (laughs) So the idea of Frank trying to step in as a gym is the funniest thing in the world to me. 
So Murphy turns off the TV, tries to page their nurse, and the voice just goes, what do you want? She says, I need some juice and an extra pillow. I'll see what I can do. Come on, I'm in pain here. Good. <laughs> I heard that. Which I was like, and at that moment, someone else enters the hospital room. It's Eldon! Eldon! So um, I'm curious, after watching it, I realized, were you able to figure out who Eldon was in her life? No, actually, I wrote it. I wrote that down as a question. I wrote down Eldon question mark. I did write also, I love the fact that he brought a cactus because obviously she's so prickly. You know, like I thought that was a great metaphor. You know, like here's cactus for you. Um, I almost actually thought, and again, yeah. not knowing anything about the show or the characters, I wondered if he was a figment of her imagination. <gasps> Ooh. Oh, I love that. Like Keep maybe he was someone that she knew in her past and he pa and he died and she still like kind of talks to him because I just thought that there was here's the end of the episode. There's no one else in the room and he like knows her enough to he's the one the only one who does not bring flowers. He brings a cactus. Um so yeah, it's, I was, yeah. I just love that as an alternate timeline headcanon. I love that so much, it's, especially because of who Eldon is in her, her life and over the story. And Lauren, do you want to explain? Uh, yeah, so Eldon was hired in the pilot to paint her kitchen and he has never left. He always seems to find something to paint. Uh, something when <laughs> I asked Steve to write us some notes about this episode, he said this is the kind of character that in any other show, because it's the confidant, would be like, uh, you know, a partner or a sibling or a best friend, right? And so here you have the house painter, the sort of, you know, phys uh, uh, platitudes and, you know. Uh, so he's real. He's, he real. he's real. He's real. Okay, he's real. But it's <laughs> interesting you say that because we joked about that yeah, in the he's first real. season mm -hmm. that for a while he wasn't meeting everybody until like episode six or something. And we, I think we did joke that he could be a figment of her imagination. And oh my I God, think that's, that's so really crazy. astute. I, that, I got that. Really from. great. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and so in the end, yeah. he ends up being the one who gets her because he, he doesn't watch television because he's an artist. So not, you know. The, but uh, so he doesn't see her as famous. He doesn't, you know, see her <laughs> ego. He brings her down a notch. He just wants to paint. And and they've sort of kind of become like a platonic married couple in a way where he's like, you know, our monopoly game. Right. And and it makes sense that at the end he would be the one that sort of yep. would bring her down to earth. Right. Where she has that sort of learning moment. But I do love also that you said that because one of the things that Steve told us was he felt that Eldon had become kind of her spiritual or like her. Her ET, Con her conscience. Yeah. Well, that too. We've talked about that. But I, her uh, moral ET compass. was something that yeah. I hadn't hadn't heard before that he mentioned. But he he ends up being the one who really gets her. And then when you know she gets pregnant, which became a big deal because of Dan Quayle, he becomes the nanny. Oh wow! Yeah, they raise her child that's, together. That's really beautiful. It's really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And he basically becomes the father figure to her child. It's also that really touched me in my like uh, my squishy fan heart because Robert Pastorelli has passed since the show and he wasn't around for the revival or anything. So the idea of Eldon being this kind of mm. ghost figure that comes in is just really sweet because the fans love Eldon so much and love Robert, Robert Pastorelli so much. And I was like, he would. Eldon would be the character who would just because kind almost, of be there I, with her in spirit Like, like all I said, that's how I thought the scene went. Like it's almost like her guardian angel. But like I, I had the feeling yeah. like it, like she knew him from another time, sort of thing. But that's not the case. But yeah, that kind of vibe, if you will. Yeah. I think the and the end. I think I already spoke about the end, where I I feel that that mm -hmm. phone call at the very end is again that learning moment, 
where it's the first moment in the whole episode where um, you see Murphy um, finally be nice, you know, and treating her her colleague um, as an equal and vice versa. There's no animosity from her colleague either. And they're and they're talking um, again, like as equals about their work, about the story, you know, and she's Mm -hmm. asking how it went and. Uh, it was I, I just thought it was beautifully done how they how they ended that. Yeah. And it kind of shows all of us that, you know, sometimes yeah. you have to give up, give up a little bit. You know, you can't control everything. It's a testament to how much they've grown into knowing each other. Her response is, Eldon, this may come as a shock to you, but I kind of missed you. And he gets so bashful. <laughs> He's like, get out of here. And he says, if she tells anyone this, he'll deny it. But he misses her, too. He says, the house is so quiet. He couldn't concentrate. His work began to suffer. He was painting the library ceiling and suddenly he found himself drawing a small elf in the far left-hand corner. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know what it meant. It concerned him. (laughs) She says, she thanks him for coming that she could use a friendly face. And he asks when she's going to get sprung from this place. She says she doesn't know. Her doctor doesn't talk to her anymore. She thinks he went into real estate. Although even the doctor broke. She says, that doesn't matter though. All they say is that she has to relax and take it easy. But... How can she do that? She just watched her show. They took her story. They took her story and they did it all wrong. And his response is, of course, we launch into this like this Elden story of understanding that comes from the most esoteric place possible. And he says, ah, he sees, you know, he had a similar experience a few months ago. He got hired for a job downtown. It was an interesting project, but Murphy was in the middle of that baseboard (laughs) crisis. So it, it killed him, but he was forced to recommend Bob from Ed's Paints, who's, and by the way, he carried in a bag from Ed's Paints. Yes, he did. And he said, he must say, Bob did an outstanding job. He used a stippling technique he'd never seen before. And he's about to launch into more of the story. And he's interrupted by Murphy asking for the moral of the story. Is What is it? Is it next time there's a story she can't do, she should call Bob from Ed's Paints? And he says, no. And what he's trying to say is, <laughs> but as he starts walking, he walks around and he just sees walls everywhere that he wants to paint. Like this one. Look at the brush hair on that paint. It's disgusting. But what can he do? He can't paint every wall in town. Though he does have some interesting ideas for the Library of Congress. I love this so much. Mm-hmm. It's, as an artist, I love this, right? You know, you want to be able to do yep. everything. But also, mm-hmm. like, the moral of this episode is so important. And I, mm-hmm. I, it's such a great episode to have near the end of a second season when you know the yes. characters better and a lesson in life like you you can't have control over everything you can't do everything and you need to slow down sometimes and i mm-hmm. i love the way that eldon tells that story to her because it's it's not literal right it's it's a bit you know metaphorical mm-hmm. um it's about him as an artist but it really drives home that message well and i think something that i appreciate about the way this show works often is they don't just constantly regurgitate the same existential crises mm-hmm. for every yeah. character. It's not the same hurdle every time. There are variants of the same hurdles because obviously we are constantly trying to fight against our own personal demons and they don't get fixed in one event in life. But I love that like this conversation is a new approach to this conversation we haven't seen yet before on the show. And they don't do the same conversation again later. They find different ways because they are complex, nuanced people. And we're not just going to keep seeing the same scene constantly over and over. Every season ends with the same conversation, like you sometimes see in lesser shows. I really appreciate the way Eldon takes us because this is one of the few times, I think, where one of Eldon's tangential artistic storms of story that he knows actually is a perfect metaphor for what they're talking about. This is one of the few times where it actually truly lands yes. with her, where there's not this, because a lot of times it's just like a, 
okay, I see where you're getting, but yeah. you're yeah, yeah, too yeah. Much for me right now. This is actually very yeah. on the on the nose for him, which is still beautifully artistic. The also the tactile quality of seeing a piece of hair on the wall, a right in front of her that he can actually focus on that's in the room that's active in that moment makes this story so present. It's also the flaw you can't fix. Someone yep. else except, painted that wall. Oh, sorry, sorry. Am I giving away your thing? Okay, except, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. But I was gonna say, except we'll come back to that hair in okay. a little bit. Is all I'm gonna say. You can't fix it, or oh. You? So Murphy finally has a moment of vulnerability, which I love. Her moments of vulnerability, specifically with Eldon, and she just kind of relaxes into herself and says, "They did it without me, Eldon." Mm. And he asks, "And that's what hurts?" And she says, "No. What hurts is that they did it okay." Oh, that feeling of like, yeah, they. I guess they didn't need me. As much as I like that, that feeling of loss of relevance, oh. you know, and that loss of like that need, like her need to be indispensable and that feeling of like, oh, maybe I'm not. It it feels like I'm doing a, a show right now that's all about like intergenerational and trauma and generational mm-hmm. conversations. And so this idea of like she's in that in between generation, you have the gym generation that's dealing with themselves kind of going out of style and becoming the old generation and not as like necessary and then she has a younger generation that's coming up that are, are like the change makers and are seeing things and wanting to do things differently. And she's the one in the middle kind of holding the line. And it's just one of those moments of realizing that she's no longer indispensable. She's not the young one, you know, like she's important. She's still in a place where she's not the old guard that's be- being becoming invisible and forgotten and completely dated. But this idea of like before they could not have done this without me and they actually did it. And they didn't do badly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a universal feeling that women in their forties have, mm-hmm. and and is is, mm-hmm. is petered throughout the the series. You know, starting from the first episode mm-hmm. when you know she comes to see Corky, who replaced her when she wasn't there, is now a permanent fixture. So something interesting that um, Steve brought up in his email, which he said on the show before, is that from the outskirts you go, well, these people are rich and famous. What kind of problems could they possibly have? Because conflict is story. And so here you have these sort of little human moments that are on a larger scale, obviously, but we all feel at a certain point in our life. And I can relate to this, even though mm-hmm. I'm not on the same level as Murphy. And I, I think it's really beautiful the way that they are doing this. You know, we've had moments like this before where she's like been dealing with a, you know, am I reaching that stage for women where they become mm-hmm. invisible? But I love this moment because it's one of the few that become soft and vulnerable and isn't out of a moment of loud frustration or a conflict. Like it comes out of being able to just settle into saying the thing so simply. And and I think something we've brought up, both of us have brought up in different ways, is that something that we missed in the later seasons of the show is that Murphy loses this vulnerability. She's only sort of... Yep. Not all the time, but not it doesn't come up as much, I would say, as you get further and further into the series until you get to the final season when she has cancer, which obviously is a bigger thing. Mm-hmm. And it could be the storylines. It could be the direction they wanted to go with her. But she sort of loses this this vulnerability that makes her human to me and not just a caricature, even though it is a sitcom and it's yeah. a lot of over the top jokes. It's a little it's that balance that we love about it. And another reason mm-hmm. that I. I forgot how much I really love the ending of this episode. Yes. In her anger, immediately goes, ow, because she hurts herself with her rage. And Eldon says, you're not getting this, are you? If you don't give it up a little, you're going to be in here forever. And you don't want that. He heard those nurses talking and they hate her. (laughs) And she says he's made his point. And he says, all right, 
How about a nice game of chess? He lost one of the kings, so he's been using the little top hat from our Monopoly game. Our Monopoly game. They have their own together Monopoly game. I love it. They're a household. She says, she tells him to crack it open and prepare to lose. But first she has a call to make and she calls the set to speak to Frank. While she's talking to Frank, Eldon pulls out a paint scraper because he must get that hair out of the wall paint. And I've never felt so seen. (laughs) I think of this scene every, not that I paint a lot, but I did paint my wall last year. And all I could think about was this scene. (laughs) The fear of that hair. She tells Frank that she saw the show and tells him it was okay. Well, it was better than okay. She pauses to listen and she says, fine, you're the greatest reporter in the history of man. And then she asks Frank to visit her tomorrow. And then we fade out on her saying, but she wants to talk to him about that chin up America thing. What was going through your mind? So something we didn't mention before is that the title of this, obviously, we mentioned is based on the song by Elton John. And I found out that it is the first song or hit song to use the word bitch in the title, which was very risque in 1974. And many radio stations refused to play it when it was released. A few stations tried to edit out the word bitch, but it appears 42 times in the song. Yeah. The Rolling Stone had a song called Bitch in 71 that's on Sticky Fingers, but they didn't issue it as a single. Rod Stewart had a hit in 79 called Ain't Love a Bitch. Uh, And then I love this quote that I had from this article I read was, but the 80s were mostly bitch free. (laughs) (laughs) I begged to And then, of course, in the 90s, we have Bitch by Meredith Brooks, one of my anthems that I used to play in my car when I learned to drive. So thank you for joining us yeah. for this major episode. Thank you, uh, Matilda, for joining us. Oh. But thank you so much again for asking me to be mm-hmm. a guest on your show. Uh, this was so much fun. I'm so glad you had fun. I, I, you're doing such great work on the show, and I love that they're giving you more and more to do yes. every season. It's so great. Thank you. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> thank you <Yeah>. very much. <laughs> I was so excited when this season that you got to get out of your uniform and wear like, you know, one of the lovely like outfits from the show and you went to the beach. Yes, I got in season three. I got to there was one episode with it was a smoking scene with uh, Shirley where I was watching Mm -hmm. TV. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Caroline Aaron. So that was I love that scene. And then um, Coney Island in season four was my second time um, where Zelda wears um, street clothes. (laughs) <laughs> and she got to be out of her uniform, which is which is always just it's just very fun. It's very fun for me, you know, since I'm always in the yeah. uniform. But um, yeah, I just I love being on that show. It's like such a great job. It's like seriously, like hands down, like the best job ever. I feel so grateful. Oh, that's great to hear. It must be so bittersweet, though, that you're in the final season. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was it was. Yeah, it was definitely bittersweet, um, especially when we started filming. We're in the middle of shooting season five right now. Um, but when we started like at that first table read a couple months ago, um, for season five, it definitely was, it would definitely was bittersweet, you know, it's just like, oh no, this is the last time we're going to be doing an episode one, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like, it's like yeah. so hard not to think that way. And like, you're just trying to, everyone's taking like extra photos of everything of, you know, um, on set and stuff like that. Um, more selfies and but yeah, I mean, I'm like, I, like I said, I'm just so thankful. Um, also, that you know, we we got or that we are doing yeah. five seasons, which is nothing to sneeze at for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I can't wait to see what happens. That that finale really uh, emotionally hit me, mm-hmm. like as an artist, but also just as a fan of the show. It was I was crying so much that my roommate knocked on my door. She's like, "Are you okay?" 
the the last in season four the last the last episode. yeah the last episode yeah yeah with lenny yeah. bruce that whole that was hard yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it's just really beautiful yeah and that's the thing like i always say to people like i'm i'm on the show like obviously like i've read the scripts i'm part of the, you know like i'm part of the whole process yeah but when the show comes out and I, as i'm i watch i'm watching it i'm still I still end up watching it like as any audience member. And I totally also was crying at the end, you know, of, you know, episode eight of season four. It was just, it's just beautiful. It's just so mm-hmm. yeah. absolutely beautiful. Um, you know, and also even be- j- right before that scene, like the scene with, uh, you know, Tony and Kevin in the hospital where like Abe wrote oh, that obituary yeah, yeah. for Moish and he, and he's reading it. It's just such a, beautiful just such yeah. a beautiful moment they just such a great job yeah the, it's it, you see the love between them and how that you know they had hated each other and then it it really built up to so many moments that had already been happening throughout the season and so yeah, yeah you're just like you care about these people and it's so emotional but yeah. also the with the whole like lenny bruce scene um where with the empty theater and you have midge um and lenny on the stage uh, a friend of mine had said that that really got to him, not just because of in a vacuum, how beautiful that moment was um, in and of itself, but he said specifically as an actor, mm-hmm. having lived through now two years of the pandemic or over two years yeah. of um, not being able to act, like not yeah. having the theater. And it's like you have this empty, this metaphor of this empty theater. And that really got to him. Where he's just like, I, you know, I can't wait to get back to like for normal life to kind of start more again. Um, obviously, it has started, you know, but still, it's not obviously like Fossil Suite just yeah, shut no. down because, you know, they had positive COVID cases, you know. So it's like that's, you know, that's still happening. And I was as actors and, you know, artists, um, it's stressful in general. And again, that 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 whole scene with the empty theater i think that hit a lot of people um really in the heart in in a lot of ways thank you so much for joining us this has been so amazing thank you it's so nice to have you oh my goodness thank you so much for having me on your show this was so much fun um i loved it i love being able to you know um be introduced to a show that i had never seen before and this was so much fun chatting with you too Thank you again so much. And do you want to tell everyone where they can find you on social media if you want them to find you on social media? Um, sure. Why not? (laughs) Um, on Instagram, I am at Matilda S Z Y 26 on Twitter. It's at Matilda S Z Y and my book, all cats speak Polish. Uh, you can find that on Amazon. We'll put a link in our show notes so everyone can buy it. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. And we'll see you next week for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. Particularly Loretta Devine could give me a massage because then we could just have a cool conversation. I could give her a massage, actually. I think I should give her a massage. She deserves it. I would love to give Loretta. Yeah. 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 So that can be part of us, you know, getting around the show is, you know, yes. we'll give you a massage through telecommunications. If you don't want me to touch you, I will pay for someone else to give you a massage. Donate toward you getting an excellent massage by whomever you choose. Guests of the Murphy Brown podcast receive a $5 gift card to, to spas across America. It's not much, but it's more than you had before. <laughs>